Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I am joined by Martin Reffalo from JPS Health and Fitness. He's been pursuing his PhD, where he's investigating the relationship between muscle hypertrophy and the proximity to failure. And he's been on the podcast before talking about this, where we talked about his scoping review. He's also been on a meta-analysis that was also published, and since then also part of a team that looked at a meta-regression. And so there's been lots of information coming out about RAR and proximities to failure as it pertains to muscle hypertrophy and also fatigue. And he's actually been conducting a very well conducted study investigating this where he had participants training one leg using a failure protocol, another leg using a proximity to failure protocol or an RAR and investigated the proximity to failure relationship on muscle hypertrophy. And I think there's lots of things that we dig into in this podcast about the methodologies and those sort of things that make this a really, really valuable discussion that you can take forward with your own education in terms of when you read and interpret studies and how to take that on board to feed into your own protocols and philosophy moving forward. And as a reminder, guys, if you find these podcasts valuable, please make sure to subscribe if you haven't so you don't miss another episode. Please give us a like or a review. It's always, always helpful. And also comment if you're over on YouTube because it helps us grow as a podcast. So thank you so much. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I have Martin Reffalo back on the show. It was actually a, a while since we spoke last time, Martin. It doesn't feel like that long has passed, but it was uh, nine months ago. So September last year, we we're talking, it was episode 327. If people want to reference that and go back, because you mm-hmm. might want to after this chat here. And we we're talking about uh, this scoping review that you kind of published. We were just looking at the impact of proximity to failure on hypertrophy and some fatigue outcomes. And that's kind of been in vogue. I mean, it's always in vogue over the last few years, mm-hmm. at least in like the evidence-based kind of bodybuilding scene and uh, failure versus not high intensity versus volume, these sort of things. And uh, the really cool thing is uh, you're actually nearly completing your PhD and you're really investigating kind of proximity to failure and its impact on our, uh, sorry, its impact on hypertrophy. That's like your mm-hmm. main interest. So you've recently kind of been looking into that deeper and uh, we're going to be digging into that. But uh, how things, how how has the last kind of few weeks been for you kind of gathering all that data and how's kind of thinking about last time we came on and what's changed since then? Like, has it been interesting for you? Or what, I, I'm very interested to know what's going through your head with everything that's been going on within kind of the industry. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be back here, Steve. So thanks for inviting me back on. Uh, you're right. I'm, I'm nearly finished my PhD. I think I've been thinking about, you know, RIR and hypertrophy every day for probably the past you know two years. And I'm looking forward to, to getting it done. Uh, you're right. Last time we spoke, uh, we touched on the scoping review. So that was my first contribution to the research uh, when it comes to this topic. And since then, we've come quite far. I've published... I think another three uh, research papers and and been involved in in some as well, like the recent meta regression. And it has been very cool to be a part of this process, uh, providing you know interesting and novel insights into this area of research. I think it's a very promising time for exercise science as we learn, you know, new ways to to do things. 
whether that's through statistical analysis or designing studies themselves. I think studies are only improving in their design and in their ability to be um, generalized and transfer to practical application. So yeah, at, at this point, I have just finished the first round of data collection for my final PhD study. So it's it's really all been all leading up to this last study where I I really try to fill in some of the gaps that we have in in the research. As we spoke about in the last podcast uh, that you touched on earlier, you know, the scoping review was all about voicing concerns of the current literature, you know, the gaps that we have and what needs to be done to improve and improve the, the research, the studies that are designed, but also the interpretations uh, that we can get from research. Uh, from then, I went on to publish the meta-analysis uh, towards the end of last year, which we had touched on in that podcast as well. Uh, from there, I published a study that looked at the influence of proximity to failure on fatigue. Right? So that was one of the first studies to actually use an RIR-based approach and look at differences between specific RIRs. Uh, the recent meta-regression, I think, uh, has also been um, a talking point as of late. And I was very privileged to, I'm very privileged to have been involved in that as well. So that was a very interesting exploration of the, the current literature, you know, key word there being exploration. Uh, it wasn't designed to be confirmatory, so we can't really come to any concrete uh, conclusions specific to the influence of given RIR values on muscle hypertrophy. So, uh, you know, based on the conversations I've had, I think some people are under the impression that we have addressed the research limitations with this meta-regression. But we haven't really done that. And Zach did a great job on the Revive Stronger podcast not long ago speaking about how there are limitations to the data that we used, right? The limitations are baked into the data set. And we tried our best to explore the dose-response relationship between RIR and muscle hypertrophy. And uh, Zach, you know, said it really well. He said, look, at this point, you know, all we can say really is that as sets are terminated close to failure, muscle hypertrophy seems to increase. But beyond that, we can't really make any conclusions, again, about the specific effect, the specific effect of RIR on hypertrophy. And that's a really important point. Uh, and I think for anyone out there who still maybe struggles to to connect the dots between some of these papers. I think it's important to go back and read some of the, the previous literature. So I think, for example, my scoping review would be prerequisite reading for the meta-regression because it speaks about some of the research limitations, you know, the ambiguity, the variability and proximity to failure in non-failure conditions that we, we tried to estimate in the meta-regression and we did, but we are likely inaccurate, you know, how inaccurate we are, we we aren't exactly sure. There's pros and cons to each approach you you decide to take, uh, you know, pros and cons to the meta-analysis that I generated last year, pros and cons to the meta-regression 
And so I think it's really important at this point with all these new research studies, you know, being published and coming to the forefront, it's important we continue to look at the totality of the research and we don't equate, you know, a, a justified true belief with the last study that we came across. Uh, I think the best look at this topic still comes from zooming out and, you know, looking at the pros and cons of each study, each analysis, and trying to use clues that each of these analyses provide to come to an interpretation and a potential uh, practical application that works for you or your clients. Uh, we spoke about this last time, Steve. We spoke about how, you know, when we're reading research and we're trying to apply it practically, we have to use an interpretive framework and and not just take research findings at face value. So that's what's going through my head. And like I said, I think it's a very promising time uh, in exercise science because studies are only getting better. We're starting to get a deeper look into many topics that you know have been spoken about for for a long time now and we just have to keep all these important things in mind uh when you know we're scrolling through instagram and a new study pops up right we can't just take those headlines at face value we need to ensure that we're we're reading the studies and we're we're, we're reading the conclusions, but we're also overlaying that understanding on the prior information that we have built, right, over the previous years with all the other work that has been done as well. So, you know, at this point, I'm I'm running uh, the the only study, to to my knowledge, really that has that is using an RIR based approach to set termination, as you would in your own training to reliably look at muscle hypertrophy. And based on the conversations I've had with some people, many are under the impression that this has already been done based on maybe how people speak about, you know, study results and how things look on social media, for example, where there usually is a lack of detail and nuance that sometimes misses the forest for the trees and is not a true reflection of the original document you know whether it's a research paper or a podcast that that was that was put out um so i'm looking forward to having a chat about um the the study that i'm currently conducting and hopefully people appreciate you know the lengths that i've gone to here to try and design a study that you know, we can all resonate with if we use RIR in our own training. I think that was uh, really, really well said. And, and the point I really liked that you raised was kind of when new data is coming out, not forgetting everything else that has already been published, because I think some people maybe, <clears throat> I mean, you'll get the person who will just they're cherry pick. They're either, they might, I don't know, favor RER. And so they'd like cherry pick your kind of previous meta-analysis and scope and review that kind of maybe suggested there wasn't such a big difference between failure training and not. And then if they're like pro failure training, they're going to go to the meta-regression and be like, no, this is the way to do mm -hmm. it. And I imagine both those people haven't even probably dug into either of those papers. And actually, like you just mentioned there, I think a lot of people are under the impression that 
it specifically has had studies and several studies comparing exactly what you just said, how we use RAR in practice versus mm -hmm. training to failure when actually, like you've just mentioned, you've literally, or you're in the process of conducting the first one there. And yeah, you did a great job, I think, of outlining all those uh, limitations in your kind of scoping review with like no consensus of even what failure was. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people weren't truly mm -hmm. aware of that. But even myself included and i think a lot of people in practice call like zero rar failure and it's like mm -hmm. well is that or is it not it's kind of a mm -hmm. bit like you're on you know it's, it's voluntary failure uh, and then even like the proximity to failure being unclear in terms of like again the, the speed of repetitions being used in some instances and then others not uh, and that sort of thing so yeah i'm i'm very excited to talk about this study and so I guess starting with maybe the the kind of title and what you kind of were looking to investigate i guess we can start from there if that makes sense yeah so i don't have a title yet but we'll get there eventually maybe that's why i didn't uh, have one here <laughs> <laughs> that's right so so i'm trying to design a study that steve you can read through and like i said before resonate with uh in regards to your own training I want to design a study that fills the gaps that I've spoken about, you know, in previous podcasts and in some of my previous work. And, you know, with the help of my team, I think we've gotten to a point where we have a very strong design. Uh, like I said, I finished the first round of data collection. I have some preliminary results, which we're going to touch on today. And I'm going to try and speak about some of the, the key points that I think people who are interested in hypertrophy research should be aware about and should keep in mind uh, going forward when they do read other research studies. I'm trying to almost bulletproof the study that I'm currently conducting. And of course, there's always going to be some limitations. We can't cover all bases, but really trying my best here, really trying to provide you know, a, a novel insight into how RIR specifically influences hypertrophy. So this is an eight-week unilateral study design. And what this means is participants uh, performing resistance training with their lower limbs, but each limb is randomly allocated to a different training protocol. Now, this is a very strong uh, design for hypertrophy research, um, the unilateral design. Basically, what we're doing here is we're, we're virtually doubling the sample size that I might, may have. So for example, if I so far I've recruited nine participants, but I'm actually going to have 18 data points, right? Because each participant is training both of their legs, but their legs are assigned to a different protocol. So in the case of this study, one limb will be performing resistance training to momentary failure, right? All their sets to momentary failure. The other limb will be performing all their sets to a specific RIR. Now, this is where the novelty comes into play. So the RIR limb uh, will be predicting their reps and reserve to control set termination as you would, Steve, when you are going through your own training sessions. So this will help fill some of the research gaps because the goal is to try and maintain the same 
RIR across all sets, right? Now, in previous research that we had to use uh, in the meta-regression, for example, um, and, you know, in these previous research studies, we, we, we use them to estimate RIR. Basically, in, in most of the studies, the RIR likely changed from set to set due to fatigue because it wasn't really anything that the researchers or the participants were really paying attention to. Steve, if I allocated you a set uh, and rep prescription of, let's say, four sets of eight reps with 75% of your one rep max, across all sets, right, if you're just stopping at eight reps, the RIR is likely going to change. You're likely going to accumulate some fatigue. It might decrease as the sets go on. And, you know, not only is that the case, but across participants within the same group, we're likely going to see different RIRs being reached as well. Because, for example, if you could do 12 reps to failure with 75% of your one rep max, then technically, technically stopping at eight reps would be four reps in reserve. But I, for example, might be able to do 14 reps to failure with 75% my one rep max, which means stopping at eight reps would actually be six reps in reserve. So not only in the case of previous research studies do we have a within individual variability in the RIR achieved across sets, we also have between individual variability. And then that changes from study to study as well. And basically in the meta-regression, we have to assign one RIR value to each group. And hopefully you're starting to build a bit of a picture as to how that is limited, but it is the best we can do with the literature the literature we have, right? So something to keep in mind there. And what I'm trying to do with my study is ensure that participants are controlling RIR on their own accord from set to set, trying to keep it constant. So with all that said, the RIR leg um, will have a specific RIR target that they are trying to reach and they terminate their set on their own accord when they think they've gotten to that RIR target. Now, in the case of this study, it's, it's a lower body uh, study, which means we'll be training the legs, like I said, and the exercises I've chosen are the leg press, so the 45 degree leg press and the leg extension, okay? Two commonly employed exercises. Uh, they're both relatively easy to push to failure in the sense that there's little technical concerns. Um, so, you know, a leg press is likely a better uh, suited exercise to this sort of study design than a squat, for example, where there's a whole host of other uh, demands that need to be considered. So those are the exercises that were chosen for this study. And the RIR leg was assigned a two RIR target on the leg press. So terminating sets once an individual perceived to be at two RIR. And on the leg extension, the target was a one RIR. So still pretty hard training. But what I'm interested in here is trying to investigate the nature of the relationship between RIR and hypertrophy as we get closer to failure. So Steve, I think most people agree that uh, there is a difference between, let's say, training to a six RIR and to a two RIR or to failure, right? 
And we see that in the meta, meta regression. We see the trajectory is increasing as sets are terminated closer to failure, less so with heavier loads, but that's def that's generally the case. But at the top end there, right, is there a difference between pushing two failure and even just keeping one or two reps in the tank? That's what I'm trying to investigate. Now, of course, that meta regression showed that there was a difference between train to failure and zero RIR and one RIR. But when you consider that the, the ground we're standing on with that meta regression is a little shaky. And like I said, the limitations render any claim specific to given RIR values unreliable and likely inaccurate, right? So again, all we can say there is that, hey, as we push closer to failure, hypertrophy tends to increase, but because of the estimation process and the limitations of literature as a whole, we're still not exactly sure about the exact nature of that relationship as it pertains to specific RIR values. So I think with this study design, we're going to have a, an insight into what's happening you know, at the top of that relationship when we're getting really close to failure, right? So the RIR leg was still hard training. The failure leg was obviously hard training. And obviously I'll be looking at the differences between the legs. Now, you might ask, for example, well, is there like a cross education effect between the legs? Like does training one leg potentially hypertrophy the other? And that doesn't seem to be the case. So for example, neuromuscular properties may transfer from limb to limb. So building strength in one leg, for example, may transfer to some strength in the other leg, but hypertrophy doesn't seem to take place. Um, doesn't Hypertrophy doesn't seem to work like that. So the molecular signaling that leads to hypertrophy seems to be quite local. Um, you might also ask, well, what about the hormonal increases post-training, right, that lead to potentially lead to hypertrophy. And um, that's an interesting question as well, but post-exercise elevations in, in hormonal concentration don't seem to be a major influencer of hypertrophy. So, you know, training to failure on one leg and the subsequent hormonal response likely isn't going to affect the hypertrophy seen in the opposing leg. So again, the unilateral design is quite a strong design when looking at muscle hypertrophy as an outcome. So that's the, the rough um, study design. Um, the training duration will be eight weeks. Uh, participants will be coming in to train twice per week. And another interesting talking point is volume. Right, people speak about volume a lot and and how many sets participants perform in, in certain studies. And what I did as part of this study was I individualized the volume. So to each participant, based on the volume they were completing in the months leading up to the study. And this is another important point because let's say, Steve, let's say you were performing 15 sets for your quads and per week. And you signed up to my study and the generic um, set volume allocation was eight sets per week for all participants, right? You would probably experience some sort of a detraining effect because you've gone from 15 sets down to eight sets, right? Whereas 
some people who might only be doing a few sets for their quads, they're going to get boosted up to eight sets. And that might either be too much for them to handle, or it might promote a very robust hypertrophy response. Either way, because individuals are coming into the study with a different training background, that's going to influence how they respond to the volume. So basically the number of sets that participants were doing leading into the study um, was used to inform the number of sets they did during the eight weeks. So if you were doing 15 sets for your quads across the week, Steve, you'd come in and you'd continue doing 15 sets. And we added 20% uh, to that number halfway through the study. So a 20% increase in volume halfway through the, through the study. So that's how it was set up. And when it comes to the the participant characteristics, I think this is also an important consideration as many previous research studies are conducted or uh, have been conducted in untrained individuals. Um, I'm currently recruiting resistance trained individuals. Um, I've had nine who have completed the first round of the study with an average training experience of about eight to nine years. And uh, six of them have competed in strength and or physique sports. So quite a highly trained sample. Uh, and, you know, going into the study, I was hoping that they were going to experience some hypertrophy in the eight-week period. And they all did, which we're going to get to soon, um, you know, despite it being quite a small amount of hypertrophy, they all they all grew to some extent, which which is pretty cool. Uh and yeah, that's how the study is 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 looking at the moment. And hopefully, you know, if you're if you're listening and, and paying close attention to some of these points, um, you're starting to build a bit of a picture as to how this study it it's it, it's what we sometimes call ecologically valid. Right. What this means is it's it's a study design that we could easily implement in practice. Right. And a lot of people currently implement this type of training in practice. Um, another consideration that I think is worth mentioning is that throughout the eight week period, uh, participants had to track their nutritional intake. Now, this is not a trivial point because if we're not tracking nutritional intake, especially in a resistance trained sample, and participants aren't in a calorie surplus, that in itself is going to be a confounder, right? Being in a calorie surplus, yes, it's not mandatory to build muscle, but it's likely going to be supportive, uh, especially if we're talking about resistance trained individuals. So I uh, teamed up with the guys from Macrofactor and all participants had to track their nutrition with Macrofactor. And if you're not familiar with the way Macrofactor functions, uh, you can set it up to be uh, basically an automated coach. So you can plug in the rate of gain that you're after or the amount of weight that you want to gain over a certain period, and it will attempt to coach you to that goal. And that's what we did. So the goal was about 1% uh, increase in, in weight gain per month. And across the eight week uh, period, the average increase in, in body weight was about two kilos for the whole sample, which indicates they were all 
in a calorie surplus. Some people found it a bit easier to gain weight than others, but the nutritional um, intervention there was designed in a way to be supportive of muscle growth. And I think that's a really important point as well. Um, I think the one thing that I, I didn't mention earlier as well is that with the unilateral study design, so the fact that I'm getting each individual to train both of their legs and I'm assigning one leg to, to each of the protocols, that also takes care of many other factors that may influence muscle hypertrophy. So Steve, we know genetics play a large role, you know, sleep, stress, all these other factors um, that can come into play. Basically, you can think of me as, as comparing one of your legs, Steve, to the other. So I'm comparing your left leg to the right leg. And, you know, that takes care of your genetics, the amount of sleep you're having, uh, your stress levels, all of those things. Whereas if I was comparing you directly to me, different genetics, different stress levels, different nutrition, all these other factors that can confound that comparison. So again, when you're reading hypertrophy research, it's important to look out for these important aspects of a study design that can make a study, you know, quite robust in its methods and potentially a study that we should put more stock into versus others. And with meta-analysis, we can't really weight studies differently based on some of these factors. So we can weight studies based on their sample size. So for example, studies with a larger sample size, for example, in a meta-analysis can have a larger influence on the overall pooled effect size that the meta-analysis generates. But we can't really look into these other factors that of a study design that play such a large role. And again, that's what I'm trying to do here so that we can be somewhat confident in the results that you know we're obtaining, um, or at least more confident than we uh, have been from some of the, the previous research. I think that was so well said, Martin, and you covered so many great points, uh, lots of ones of which I wanted to touch on. And there is more, I think, uh, ecologically valid was basically a great statement in that when I was reading mm -hmm. through uh, this study, when you kind of sent across the bits, I was like, oh, you, you're controlling for everything that whenever I look at what people have in the comment section and they have complaints about mm -hmm. studies and yeah. they're, they're completely fine complaints in terms of like genetics and not being trained mm -hmm. and diet. You, you controlled for all of these. Uh, one of the ones that I, I thought was great that you went into as well was people often are upset with, okay, momentary muscular failure, that's objective, fair enough. Mm -hmm. But what about these RARs? Can we be confident that your participants were achieving a two or one RAR and you had a familiarization period and you had them, they already had experience of one-on-one -on -one coaching kind of calling out interest at RARs. So I'd love to hear how you were confident in their RARs during this study as well. Yeah, great question, Steve. So I don't exactly know how accurate my participants were during the intervention itself. And let's face it, you don't even know how accurate you are when you're training. Um, like, yes, sometimes you push to failure and you can test yourself. But in the context of this study, uh, during the eight-week period, we didn't really have the chance to do that. However, in the week leading up to the study itself, 
I did test the participants. So I put them through, you know, my standard RIR testing process where they had to push to failure on the leg press and they had to call out when they thought they were at either a one or a three RIR on two separate sets. And that enabled me to basically see where the sample was at in regards to their RIR accuracy. Now, keep in mind, all of the participants had experience with RIR or RPE in their previous training. They'd all been training for a while. They'd all trained to failure. So with considering that, you know, I, I hypothesized that they would be pretty accurate. And again, that's why I recruited a highly trained sample in the first place. And with those tests, what I found was that participants on average were 0.3 and 0.25 reps away from the target one and three RIR respectively. Now, what this means is that they were less than half a rep away from the target RIR, right? So we've got one rep, 0.5 would be half a rep. They were at 0.3 and 0.25 on average. Okay, so most participants landed when they were reach, uh, shooting for a one RIR, they would have either got the one RIR, maybe it would have been a two, maybe it would have been a zero, maybe they overshot. And in the context of the three RIR, most predictions would have been anywhere in between two to potentially four with no predictions taking place outside of those bounds. So that goes to show that the participants were quite accurate with their RIR predictions going into the study. And I do have some uh, research that should be published soon showing that even on the bench press exercise, resistance trained individuals can be quite accurate with very similar scores to the ones that I'm uh, describing here. And you know, that gives me confidence and it should give the reader confidence as well that throughout the intervention, hopefully the RIR predictions weren't too far away from the targets that I had set uh, for set termination. So again, this is an important element of the study design that is absent in, in previous research, right? We do have research studies that are set up to assess RIR accuracy. And I basically did a mini study before the training intervention actually uh, kicks off. So that's where participants were at pre-study. And of course, that, min that, that familiarization period also gave the participants a chance to actually push to failure, right? And see what that's like. Uh, so basically they, they pushed to failure for nine weeks consecutively. If you consider the, the first week plus the eight week period, or at least one leg push to failure for for the for the nine weeks uh, straight, but uh, that will be reported in the in the paper, and again will give insight into the overall RIR accuracy of the participants going into the study. But of course, during the intervention itself, we don't exactly know how accurate they were. Yeah, I think that's that's really well said, and I think uh, I just had Jake Remett on the show, and he was looking at even it was he was comparing untrained to trained individuals on RAR accuracy, and it just seemed everyone seemed to be relatively accurate. <laughs> so even with untrained participants, like people kind of have a, a decent enough gauge on that, and I guess unless someone's hitting momentary failure, uh, 
you don't know how close they were and if they weren't at two or one they were further from failure so that's mm -hmm. kind of uh, if, if you're going to interpret any sort of way you think okay the results yeah. are like they're even further from there and because these people were trained participants some of them competitors and things uh, i'm assuming they're also doing some other training alongside this how did you kind of make sure that that wasn't interfering with the results that you were trying to derive yeah so that's one of the reasons that i chose the quadriceps as a as a muscle to to train and, and to measure i think if i was to choose uh, the biceps for example the triceps and i you know i employed a study design that involved bicep curls and tricep pushdowns and i measured growth in those respective muscles there's a whole host of other exercises that can influence growth in those specific muscles however when we're talking about the quadriceps the number of additional exercises that aren't specifically targeting the quads um, that can influence quad growth is much, much smaller, right? So as part of the study, participants uh, were, were not performing any additional quadriceps training. So they only pe performed the quadriceps training that I prescribed as part of the study. Uh, they were still able to train their hamstrings and their glutes, but they weren't allowed to perform any exercises like deadlifts, for example, that do involve the quadriceps. Um, they weren't allowed to perform step-ups, for example. You could argue that someone is doing glute-focused step-ups, but the quadriceps are always going to play some sort of a role there. So we did have a list of exercises that participants were unable to perform to ensure the that we reduced the chances of any additional training that was being performed outside of the study um, influencing the the overall results that that we were seeing. Uh, because you're right, Steve, right? All these individuals were training for five days a week. And designing a study is hard in the sense that you want to try and reduce participant burden. So I, you know, you don't want to make things too restrictive or else people just won't sign up because let's face it, you want to maximize your training. Eight to 10 weeks is a lot of time to potentially compromise on some areas of your training. So they they did their quad training with me. Um, they were limited in regards to some of the ex other exercises they could do. But beyond that, they were still able to perform uh, their own training uh, without too much of an issue there at all. So that's what we did to control yeah, any additional influence from, from the other training that they were performing. Fantastic. Uh, from uh, viewing it myself and like, talking it through with you here, I can't think of anything else you really could have done to make the results any more valid. Is there anything in hindsight that you could think that you wish you'd done or are you pretty happy with how kind of you set everything up and uh, you're going to be pretty confident in the results? Yeah, I think the one thing that stood out in the early stages of the study that will be reported is the, the frequency of niggles and injuries that did pop up. So... I'm not sure if we spoke about this on the previous podcast, Steve, but I don't think we did. But in the study I conducted last year that looked at the influence of fatigue, RIR on fatigue, 
the initial plan was to include both the leg press and the bench press. Now, the bench press was fine, and I had four participants off the top of my head that started the study with the bench press and the leg press, but I think it was two or three out of the four or five participants that I had that actually got injured uh, from the leg press, and that forced me to exclude, exclude the leg press from the study. Now, there's a few reasons that probably led to some of those injuries last year, and this year, I implemented not just that one-week familiarization period before the study started, but before that week, I had participants doing some leg press for at least four weeks leading into the study to try and acclimatize them to the protocols. But injuries and niggles still popped up. So one individual had to drop out because of an injury, uh, a strain in, in the uh, in the quad, uh, other people were complaining about some slight niggles here and there. And I think this could potentially be due to the load progression that I implemented in the early stages of the study. So basically the way it worked, Steve, is the leg press was assigned to an eight to 10 rep max load, right? So in, in the familiarization week, I tested each individual's eight to 10 rep max, and that's what they started off with the leg extension was a 10 to 12 rep max. Now, throughout the training period, if participants exceeded that loading range, because remember, they, were, they weren't constrained to a certain number of reps. They had their eight to 10 rep max load on the leg press and they terminated their sets when they believed to be at two RIR. Now, if someone got to 11 or 12 reps, I added load and people were responding pretty well in the first few weeks. And so I was adding five kilos at a time on the leg press. And looking back, maybe I should have added 2.5 kilos to the leg press to try and reduce the, the exposure to such heavy loading um, over quite a short period of time. So that's something that I'll be looking to do in the second round um, that will be commencing soon to try and mitigate the chances um, of these niggles and potential injuries arising. Uh, and this is another interesting talking point. So, you know, load was progressed through the eight weeks, as I described. And Steve, you might ask, well, what if the participants didn't get to the uh, the rep range that we were kind of shooting for, you know, the eight to 10 rep max range or the 10 to 12 rep max range? What if they were fatigued and they only did six reps or five reps? Did I drop the load? And the answer to that is no, because that's a byproduct of fatigue. So what I was trying to investigate here was the effect of RIR, right, or the effect of proximity to failure on rep performance across sets as well, right? So yes, load was progressed, was increased um, if participants exceeded that range. But across sets, if their reps dropped off, I didn't make a change because that's simply a byproduct of fatigue. So with that in mind, across the eight-week period, we can then zoom out and look at how each protocol, uh, look at the volume load and the rep volume that each protocol achieved, right? So I didn't purposefully try to equate volume across the legs, like I said, you know, you stop when you've got a certain number of reps in reserve. This other leg is going to stop when it just reaches failure. 
and we're going to see what happens across multiple sets, which I think also has important benefits because we are interested in how fatigue, how, how proximity failure not only interacts with hypertrophy, but also interacts with fatigue because fatigue and hypertrophy may also have some sort of long-term interaction, although we do need more research to elucidate that further. I think I'm glad I asked that question. I almost thought you were going to be like, no, super confident in everything mm -hmm. we did. And, but that yeah. was actually really an interesting uh, look into uh, insight into things. And we did touch on it briefly because I've mentioned it mm -hmm. a few times in some podcasts where I know you said you included the leg press and people trained to failure ended up kind of getting injured yeah. on it, which like, I think when you think about leg press, you think about failing on it. Like it's, it's pretty horrific, especially if you're not skilled at it. So I can see how like that could be a thing. And obviously the within subject design doing single leg was helpful, but I imagine failing single leg is a little bit, I don't know, less risky somehow because it's less load and I, I'm not sure mm -hmm. why it just seems like it's a, a little bit of a, an easier thing to do than using both. But yeah, like you said, the interaction with fatigue is very interesting because uh, I believe there is research looking into when you train to failure, it does impact like future sets mm -hmm. and you can't perform as well. So the people and looking at like how much volume did they do total was actually trained. You'd think people train to failure, they can mm -hmm. do like they get those that extra rep or two reps on the, the exercise. Yeah. But how does it impact the rest of the sessions and sets and future like throughout the entire mm -hmm. time? So, mm -hmm. yeah, do you are we allowed to talk about some of the kind of results you've achieved so far? You, you had some objective and uh, subjective measures. Yeah, totally. So I think before we get into that, it's also worth discussing another aspect of the measurement I used to specifically investigate muscle hypertrophy. Now, for some people, this may seem to be a trivial point, but in reality, it's actually quite important. And I don't think um, previous research has paid enough attention to the potential error in the measurement that is used to measure, right, and assess hypertrophy. So what do I mean by this exactly? Well, Steve, there's, there's multiple uh, measurements that we can employ to assess hypertrophy. So we have starting at the top, MRI, that seems to be the gold standard, also very expensive. Um, we can use DEXA scans. We can use ultrasound imaging, we can use CT scans. There's, there's quite an array of, of different measures that we can employ. Um, they all have their own margin of error, right? So the machine that you use, that specific machine, it's got a margin of error. But looking beyond that, the way the measure itself is used by the technician, the way it's administered, also comes with a potential error margin as well, right? So let me try and elaborate a little further. I decided to use ultrasound imaging to assess muscle hypertrophy, right? So basically what we're doing here is we're assessing specifically muscle thickness, right? So we're able to measure the thickness of a given muscle in centimeters. Now, Steve, imagine you were lying, you know, on your back, supine on a bench, um, and I place an ultrasound probe on your thigh. The way I I place that probe on your thigh, the pressure I apply, the angle at which I apply it, all these factors can influence the image that is generated on the ultrasound machine, 
right now remember i'm i'm so i'm looking down into the thigh so basically the image that is produced uh shows from the layer of skin all the way down to the femur and i can measure uh, the vastus lateralis and the rectus femoris uh, that way the muscle thickness right so what i did to take care of any potential concern surrounding error in the measurement was the addition of two baseline assessments, right? So in that first week, that familiarization week before the eight-week training study commenced, I took two baseline assessments of muscle thickness. So Steve, if I was to measure the muscle thickness of your quads today, and again in 48 hours, there should technically be hardly any differences, right? It should be basically the same. Obviously, there's going to be some minor differences, but they should be very similar. If they're not very similar, then the error margin, right, the potential to the potential um, error in the measurement is quite large. And that's a confounding factor for study results, right? And oftentimes, research studies only employ the one baseline measure. So they can't actually calculate their own typical error value, right? So the typical error value basically indicates the potential error in the measurement. And again, this is not a trivial point because this simply solidifies the results that we're uh, obtaining from the study even further. So for example, Steve, my typical error value was 0.1 centimeters, right? So one millimeter. So that was like the variance almost, we could think of it as a variance seen between the, the two baseline assessments. So any increases in muscle thickness greater than one millimeter are unlikely to be due to measurement error, right? So I can confidently state that. If we see an increase in muscle thickness that's less than a millimeter, I can't actually say whether that's due to hypertrophy or due to randomness and uh, error in the measurement. So I, I'm hoping that makes sense. And sometimes it's a it's a tricky point to try and get across. And I don't hear it spoken about enough in hypertrophy research. So what some uh, studies do, for example, Steve, is they will they will decide to use an ultrasound machine to assess muscle hypertrophy, and they will simply reference a typical error value that was established mm -hmm. in another lab that also used the same ultrasound machine. But of course, it's not the same technician using the actual machine, placing it on someone's thigh and getting the measurement. So I think it's important that going forward, studies try and take ownership of that, employ the two baseline assessments, and calculate their own typical error value. Because when we get to the results, and I speak about the hypertrophy that we actually saw, I can use the typical error value as a reference point to adjust how confident I am in the results that I'm seeing actually being due to hypertrophy instead of just error in the measurement. Does that make sense? Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then 
it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, the way I, I don't know if this helps the listeners, but this is the way I'm, I have an example of kind of something that I mm-hmm. think about it with is uh, girth measurements for clients. Like if, if you're taking like an arm measurement or chest measurement very frequently, quite often the change is that you're trying to observe is smaller than the human error that is involved when you're using like just a tape measure around the arm. And if I, I don't know, tried to calculate that person's human error, I might be able yeah. to take that into consideration into mm-hmm. The, the change that we're seeing, which is kind mm-hmm. of my comparison to what you've done here, which I think is, again, it's not something I believe I've ever heard about either. And it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense because I hear about like the fact if you're using like a DEXA, for example, like you, it's important to use the same machine and under like the same conditions because different machines, I guess, have these error rate differences. And so you can't be sure the other machine that you're on is giving you a, di- a different report, but how does that compare to this, I guess, other machine here? So I think that's a really important and great point to make. Yeah, so like intuitively, you already seem to know that, but like you said, you'd never really come across it um, in discussions or you know via reading research. So again, this is something that will be reported in the paper, um, as I start the second round of data collection, I'm going to continue um, employing these measures to calculate the most accurate typical error value. And, you know, hopefully everyone, you know, experiences hypertrophy and we can confidently say that it is hypertrophy and it's not due to potential error, like I, I mentioned earlier. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, I guess we can dig into maybe some of the results that you've uh, got so far. Yeah, I I think before we get to the specific results, uh, we should probably just touch on statistical analysis for a bit of time because we we spoke about this in the last podcast, Steve. We spoke about how I, I believe I spoke about how previous research has employed a an approach where two different groups are obviously compared and a p-value is calculated to indicate whether a potential difference between the two groups is statistically statistically significant or not. Now, when people read that there is no statistical significance, or at least from, again, conversations I've had and the observations I've made, that sometimes leads them to think that, okay, well, we just shouldn't care about them. There's no difference. And I think in the past, that's where people have been led to think that, well, there's no statistical difference between training to failure and non-failure. 
right, in these individual studies. And so we don't need a train to failure at all. And I don't think that is the right interpretation to be making because even if there is no statistical difference between two groups, there could still be some practical importance to that difference. Now, I'm not saying that significance testing um, shouldn't be used. I think it has merit in certain circumstances. I used it in the meta-analysis that I conducted last year, but I didn't solely rely on the p-value to come to my interpretations, right? In that meta-analysis, you know, at no point did I say that you shouldn't train to failure because there is no statistical difference, right? We did, you know, we did indeed find no statistical difference between training to failure and being just short of failure. But if you're looking at the effect sizes, for example, the effect sizes did favor pushing to failure in some instances. They were just trivial. They were quite minor. And that's why they weren't statistically different. Now, in this study design, or in this study, I'm taking a slightly different approach to statistical analysis, and I'm using what's known as Bayesian analysis. So earlier in this conversation, I mentioned how when we're looking at research findings and you know this new study comes out and we read the findings, we need to also take into account our prior information, right? The prior information we have from all the other studies that there are out there and you know our prior knowledge so basically what we're doing is we're combining prior knowledge with the given data and trying to come to a conclusion and bayesian analysis is basically doing that right so with bayesian analysis we're more focused on probabilities right so instead of saying well training to failure is better than non-failure or vice versa and full stop we're saying, well, what is the probability that training to failure is better than non-failure or vice versa? So looking more so at probabilities and with Bayesian analysis, we can actually inject uh, prior information into the analysis to take into account, not just the given data that we have, right, from this study, for example, but we can also consider that data in the context of, for example, previous meta-analytic results. Right. And that provides us with a much clearer picture of how things may play out. So I think that it's important to plant that seed um, going into you know, a discussion of the results here, because I'm not specifically looking at statistical differences between the two protocols. Right. So uh, I do have some preliminary findings. And uh, I will be posting some of the preliminary findings on social media, almost like a social media preprint, if you will. Uh, and it's been very interesting to get these nine participants through the study and take their final ultrasound scans. And, you know, people might be thinking, well, you know, it's only nine participants, right? Like it's this, that's not enough participants. And, Look, the more participants, the better in all situations. Uh, it is quite hard, though, to recruit a lot of participants. And I am you know, in the process of recruiting more and, and getting my full um, sample size. But the one thing to consider here is that 
usually the critiques surrounding sample size um, are specific to what is known as statistical power, which I want to briefly make a point about. So, for example, if I recruited 10 participants and I put five in one group, five in the other, and at the end of the study, one group did seem to be a little better than the other, right? So the, they maybe gained a little more muscle. So group A gained a little more muscle than group B. If I was to run a significance test, I'd probably find no statistical difference because the sample size is low. But if, for example, I had 10 participants in each group or 15 in each group, I'd probably get a significant p-value, right? So what I'm trying to say here is that the sample size is closely tied to uh, statistical significance, right? But with Bayesian analysis, the estimates we get from Bayesian analysis are valid independent of the sample size. And I think that's a really crucial point here because, again, I'm stepping away from looking at p-values, so it's not like I need a specific sample size to try to achieve a given p-value. And again, I'm hope, hoping that is is making sense as well. Um, and of course, uh, once data collection um, is complete, we'll have a much clearer picture as to how things play out. But at the moment, it's the first round uh, that has involved uh, nine participants. So. Basically, what I've found um, upon taking the the post um, study, you know, measures of of muscle thickness, is that everyone experienced some degree of muscle hypertrophy, which is great. And basically, what I did here was I combined the hypertrophy um, experience in the rectus femoris and the vastus lateralis to provide a complete measure of muscle hypertrophy, and both legs actually grew by about three millimeters, right? Three millimeters each. Doesn't sound like much, right? But that's the total hypertrophy that was experienced. And it was very similar. If we calculate the percentage change from baseline, the fail leg experienced a 6% increase in, in hypertrophy and the RIR leg a 5.8% increase in hypertrophy. So again, very similar between the two protocols. Of course, there was some individual variability where some people gained a little more in the RIR leg, others gained a little more in the failure leg. We're talking about very minor differences here, but that's how things looked on average. Now, is, is inspection of mean differences enough to come to you know confident and concrete conclusions? Probably not. And that's why we have statistical analysis, right? So with the Bayesian analysis, what we're doing now is we're creating what are known as posterior distributions for each of the protocols. So, Steve, you might be familiar with like a bell curve that sure. sometimes shows like a normal distribution. Um, basically, the Bayesian analysis spits one of those curves out for each of the protocols to indicate the, the probability of experiencing a certain degree of muscle hypertrophy, right? So now we have a few things to look at and um, this will be uh, posted on my Instagram soon. So feel free to check it out 
um, if you're listening along and, and you want to see how this visually looks, Steve, I know you have some, some of the images that I sent through. Uh, what we can look at here is we can compare the distributions for the fail limb and the RIR limb. And we can look at the mean, right? How similar is the mean? Um, we can look at how similar the, the credible intervals are. You might have heard the term confidence intervals in Bayesian analysis. We're looking at credible intervals, which are a little different. Uh, they allow us to provide direct statements about probability. Uh, so we're comparing the mean, right, the central tendency of the mean, the credible interval, and then the distribution itself. And what I'm seeing so far is I'm seeing some pretty even overlap between the distributions. The means are roughly in line. The credible intervals are also very similar, which, you know, to summarize all that, the hypertrophy that I'm seeing so far across the limbs is very similar, right? So this evidence indicates that it is possible to experience um, as much hypertrophy as you would experience training to failure with an RIR-based approach, at least over the course of eight weeks, obviously um, considering the parameters of the program design that I implemented, right? Because proximity to failure isn't the only variable that is influencing the stimulus achieved, right? We're looking at exercises, volume, rest periods, et cetera. Uh, but given the parameters of the program design, the length of the study, that's what we're seeing at this point in time. Again, after the uh, data collection is complete, things may look a little different, but that's how things are looking at, looking like now. Awesome, Martin. What, one thing actually, uh, just to throw back to something you were mentioning before, just uh, I don't know, because it might come into the rest of our discussion here, was you mentioned the niggles and things that people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Was that specific towards like the failure leg or was it specific to just individuals? It didn't really matter if it was RAR or failure leg. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the one injury that I that the participant had to drop out because um, so one participant dropped out, and the injury that they experienced was in the RIR leg, so that was uh, a strain, um, and that's something I I think I can explain. So, and again, this is something that I'm going to do a little differently in the second round. But Steve, you can imagine coming into a study, having to increase your range of motion, for example, having to train harder. Um, there's a few, you know, this, this individual was also completing quite a high amount of volume. So they came into the study with a high volume. I increased their range of motion because I thought they could go lower than what they were doing in their own training, right? They were probably pushing harder than they were in their own training. So a few factors there leading uh, to the potential injury. We've actually implemented a rule now to try and mitigate this going forward. If an individual um, is recruited and in the previous months they've been doing more than 15 sets for their quads, we're actually going to drop that off by 20% to try and mitigate any potential injury risk and just limit participant burden in general because this one participant um, was – the sessions were grueling. I'll, I'll just right. leave it there and eventually – yeah, it was just too much to handle. Um, so this happened in the first couple of weeks, but there were grueling sessions. And I think it's just a combination of all these factors coming together. Uh, so something to consider there. And then throughout the, the study, um, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I do have them. They will be reported. Um, the failure leg did experience more niggles and complaints than the RIR leg, but it wasn't 
we're not talking about major differences here, maybe three versus two. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. That's something that will be reported in the paper. But nothing that really stands out between the legs so far. Um, again, both legs were, were training pretty hard, and it's a combination of factors that kind of comes into play that leads to you know the niggles and potential injuries that we're seeing here. Cool. Yeah, that, yeah if anything, I guess... I was thinking maybe the failure leg would get a little bit more, but uh, to think that they were similar, uh, that's also like completely believable as well. So uh, makes sense. And I guess going into this, people who had that, maybe your previous like scope and review and meta-analysis in mind, they're looking at the results and being like, that makes sense because that's kind of what your meta-analysis said. Whereas other people looking at the meta-regression and thinking, hey, like I thought mm -hmm. failure was meant to be better and here maybe, mm -hmm. well, it was like the tiniest bit better, but very, very yeah. comparable. Uh, was there any differences? I know you didn't just measure muscle growth. You measured some other like uh, fatigue outcomes. Was there any differences within that that were particularly interesting? Yeah. So before we move on, I've got the exact numbers here. So the amount of complaints, if you will, about niggles that I um, observed throughout the eight-week period um, for the failure leg, that's sitting at around four. So four complaints, whether that's, you know, groin, quad, glute, um, and then two complaints for the RIR leg plus the injury, right? So we're looking at four versus three across the, the intervention period. Again, that's something that's going to be reported. Um, it's interesting. When I was going, when I was conducting the study, especially in the early stages when people were, um, you know, complaining about these, these niggles, I was thinking about how previous research studies have been conducted, whether other researchers have had these problems when pushing participants to failure, but I don't really know because it's just not reported. Um, so again, it's well to be explicit about as many things as I possibly can be explicit about to give the reader the most complete understanding of what actually went down during the study period, because it, you know, some of the sessions were grueling, especially in the first few weeks when people were acclimatizing to the stimulus in general. Again, we can't just look at that at, as proximity to failure, right? I changed some individuals' range of motion. Um, you know, their volume stayed the same. They started training a little bit harder than they were. You know, pushing to failure. Few things going on here that would have uh, influenced um, some of the the complaints and and whatnot. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, in regards to some of the other measures, so I did make an effort to not only look at fatigue, um, but also perceptual responses, right? So responses like perceived discomfort, um, perceived exertion, general feelings as well, right? So I haven't statistically analyzed these other outcomes yet. I'm still in the process of doing that. But looking at mean differences uh, just between each of the protocols, in all cases, the failure leg experienced more discomfort, slightly more exertion as well, so RPE, so session RPE, um, and general feelings were more negative on average for the failure leg, especially in the final week of the study. So this is also a very novel and interesting um, point. What I did, Steve, to measure these outcomes was I, I did, it, did it at several time points throughout the study. So we didn't measure perceived discomfort and exertion and general feelings every week. I did it on week one, 
week four and week eight, right? So we've got three different time points. Like I said, failure seemed to always be a bit higher in regards to discomfort post-set, right? So discomfort was assessed post-set. So as soon as a participant did their set, I'd ask them what their perceived discomfort was. Um, when it comes to perceived exertion, that assessment was taken place after the individual had finished their training protocol on the one leg. Now, this is important because the way the sessions were designed, they were designed in a way to allow us to make these assessments without the other leg being a confounder, right? So, for example, Steve, if you were part of the study, you'd come in um, and you'd be ran randomly allocated to maybe starting with your failure leg and you do all your training on the failure leg before going to the RIR leg, right? So you do the leg press, leg extension on your failure leg. I'd get the perceived exertion rating after you finished your failure leg, and then we'd move on to the RIR leg, right? Now, once the RIR leg had finished its training, I wasn't going, I wouldn't ask you about perceived exertion then. And I wouldn't even ask you about perceived discomfort because that might be confounded by the fact you've already trained your failure leg. So we only took these assessments for the first leg that was trained in each session. Very right. Good. So, you know, you come in twice a week, Steve, we take your assessments on of, of the failure leg on the first session, second session, you come in, you start with RIR and we take your assessments for the RIR leg. Right now, what I found was that in week eight, um, for for the general feelings, and this is this is basically me asking you, how do you generally feel, right? You've got a scale that goes from negative five to positive five. Zero is neutral, so you feel the same as you did upon walking into the gym. Negative numbers mean bad feelings, literally. So you've got bad, fairly bad, very bad, and then the opposite for positive numbers being you know good, very good, etc. And in week one and week four, things were pretty even between the 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 failure RIR legs. Some people are actually feeling pretty good after trained to failure and RIR. Like it was just, um, it wasn't that much of a burden. Um, yes, it was hard, but it's not like it made them feel bad. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the exertion would have been high, but it's not like it, they were flattened after each of the sessions. But in week eight, at this point, um, everyone's pretty much had a negative feeling um, for for their failure leg, whereas the RIR has been slightly neutral, if not still in the positive range. And this is something that I subjectively started to observe towards the end of the study. Pretty much all the participants, you know, in that week six to week eight period were starting to not necessarily complain, but speak to me about how the fatigue they were feeling was starting to bleed into some of their other sessions right? They were starting to feel demotivated. Some people stopped doing their hamstring training after their quad, their quadricep training with me. So some of the guys would, you know, do their quad training with me, the study protocols, and then go off and do hamstring. Some people were starting to skip the hamstring work. So towards the end of the eight-week period, generally things were starting to become, you know, perceptually negative. And that was showcased, so far has been showcased, in some of my subjective assessments as well. So it was pretty interesting to see the effect of numerous weeks, you know, strung together as opposed to just acute sessions. Um, so again, this is in, in, in many of the previous research studies, 
um, these measures aren't taken. So we don't really have um, these insights into how the participants actually felt going through the the study, right? Is, is that making sense? Yeah, it makes sense because, I mean, I just think about train to failure for eight weeks with my, my current like quad volume. That does sound pretty horrific, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I get you were looking at performance, weren't you? So did that, did the kind of perceived bad feelings also align with like drops in performance towards the end or were they still able to perform despite that do you do you have that um so at this point all i can say is that and this comes back to a point i raised earlier i mentioned that i didn't purposefully equate volume between the protocols right because i wanted to see how volume would would pan out and so far if we're looking at volume load right so sets times reps times load and rep volume, which is just sets times reps, across the eight weeks, the volume across both protocols has been roughly the same, right? So they've been able to achieve roughly the same volume. So Steve, if fatigue wasn't a thing, that didn't exist, right? In, in an ideal world, no fatigue, um, the failure leg should be accumulating more volume right, both yeah. volume load and, and rep volume because it's doing the, the leg is doing more reps per set. But because of fatigue, right, things seem to even out across the eight weeks. So the volume is roughly the same. Again, that's going to be uh, reported in the paper along with some measures of fatigue that we're also taking, which, again, I haven't analysed yet. And I'll also be, re be reporting the decrease in reps that people, that participants were experiencing across the the eight weeks as well. Yeah, that that uh, makes sense. Like you said, we were talking about it earlier in terms of like the fatigue that failure brings and the impact on volume and how that could play into things and maybe be important. So I don't know, maybe I'm trying to think in that the start, the failure group are maybe managing to get that more volume, but now the accumulated fatigue is mm -hmm. hitting them towards the end. And whereas the other group are just maintaining it more readily throughout the mm -hmm. entire time because they're holding on to less accumulated fatigue. So really, really interesting stuff. Did you have any other kind of uh, outcome measures that you wanted to talk about or move on to like any practical, like are you ready to talk about any practical recommendations from this? Uh, do you have anything that this has changed for you? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the crux of the the study itself so far. And I think really most of the attention needs to be placed on, on the design of the study and the the elements of the study that I think make it quite a robust study um, if, we're, if we're really trying to investigate and examine the influence of RIR on hypertrophy. Um, there's nothing else that specifically springs to mind that needs to be touched on, but I think when it comes to practical applications, like I mentioned earlier, we shouldn't just be looking at one study to make those practical applications. So I think at this point, you know, based the past two years have been really elucidating in the sense that a lot of research has come out that I've obviously been involved in that has provided us with some important insights. Um, you know, the recent meta regression shows that the trajectory, right, is is there in as said to terminate close to failure, hypertrophy seems to increase. Things are likely trivial towards the end there, 
right towards towards that failure point. Um, at this point, my study is showing that things are pretty similar, right? Towards the top end of that relationship as we get close to failure, obviously things may change. Um, I don't think that one specific study should necessarily change your mind, right? Rather, it should push you in one direction or another, closer to closer to your original thoughts, right? Or further from your original thoughts. Um, and the way things are panning out, for me, the, the research is starting to reinforce the idea that pushing close to failure is important for hypertrophy. It's reinforcing that idea. It's more important for hypertrophy than it is for strength, right? In the past, I may have recommended um, keeping yourself within like three reps of failure on average. At this point, especially with the results of my study coming through, it's looking more like two because this is the this is the first study now where we're we're getting participants to keep their RIR constant across sets, predict their RIR. You know, I happen to prescribe a two RIR, and so at this point, the strike zone for me, the hypertrophy strike zone, is looking at you know lo looking like two reps shy from failure. So if you're keeping most of your training within that strike zone, um, you're likely going to be experiencing close to optimal hypertrophy. Um, something to keep in mind though, Steve, is that all the participants that I recruited, they all had trained to failure in the past, right? So that's something you have to consider here. You have to consider how this might look across someone's whole training journey. Right. So failure does have to be a, a part of that at some point, or else, you know, you're not really going to know how close to failure you actually are when you're predicting um, two reps in reserve, for example. But considering we also know that um, the trajectory, right, again, it's pointing the direction of, of, more hypertrophy being experienced as sets of terminate close to failure. Well, we should probably implement some failure training when the cost doesn't outweigh the benefit, right? And this is something I spoke about in my meta-analysis last year as well in the practical applications section, right? Um, on the last set of an exercise, on exercises that aren't as fatiguing, we also need to consider the, the features of the exercise, whether it's um, emphasizing the lengthened portion of the rep, for example, or the shortened position. There's a whole host of other factors that come into play that I think need to be considered when you're coaching an individual. Um, so research is only going to be able to tell us so much. And as a coach, right, from a coach's perspective, I'm trying to obtain clues from all these studies and from my experiences and my knowledge in general to to try and create a program for a client that gets them to where they need to be. Some individuals will require more sets to failure than others might. And that's where my thoughts, you know, stand at this point. It's not that they have changed per se. It's just that this research is reinforcing the importance of pushing close to failure, but do we have to reach failure on every set to maximize muscle hypertrophy? You know, at this point, I dare say likely not, right? But it should probably be part of the overall program design in the long run.
Yeah, I think that's very well stated. It's kind of like if you're if the best place to be is just before your limits, how do you know where that is if you've never gone to your limits? <laughs> like you have to experience that yeah. at some point to kind of have that rough yeah. gauge. Uh, and I guess what would be really interesting, and you might already be thinking about this in future, is like a, a third group that maybe we're at like a three and a two RR, or maybe mm -hmm. even like a four and a three RR. And how much yeah. did they experience less growth or like and what's mm -hmm. their fatigue? And uh, it's 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 super interesting stuff. And like you said, this this study despite just being one study to me it's the best one we have looking at this and so we have like lots of like quantity of data versus mm -hmm. like this is what mm -hmm. like you said in a meta-analysis this wouldn't be weighed any more heavily so it gets maybe lost in the mix a little bit but it's actually very powerful because of all the controls you put in place and i guess obviously it's only looking at the quads but there's no reason i, I guess you'd agree there's no reason to believe that relationship wouldn't be the same for if you trained a different muscle group i guess you don't know um we don't yeah. know and you had males yeah, well, and females well, that's one thing that wasn't mentioned you had males and females didn't you yeah so that's that's another um important point uh most of the previous research has been conducted in males and yeah it, it, i've made a large effort over the past um year or so to recruit both males and females in my uh, research the data set I'm currently speaking about involves eight males and one female, but in the second round of data collection, um, I have um, many other females already recruited, so the numbers should should even up. And yeah, I hope my research, yeah, at the end of the day, my goal is to improve the standard of exercise science research, and I hope the explicit reporting in the in the paper. And the methods that I've used can inspire, you know, future studies to take similar approaches and hopefully investigate this um, concept even further. Like you said, Steve, it'd be great to have more of these, more, more research studies similar to what I'm describing today. Because could you imagine, in, you know, a few years' time, if we did have two, three, four similar studies with similar designs and we conducted another meta-analysis, the the picture that we're painting here would only be a lot clearer and we'd have a lot more confidence in the claims and the statements that we can derive from research, right? At the end of the day, the credence that we award a given study finding has to be adjusted based on the uncertainties surrounding the data, the limitations of the research, right? And, you know, I'm hoping going forward, um, the quality of these studies only only improves, and again, that's that's the point of the attention that I place on the methods. Right? We spoke a lot today about just the methods, which, uh, ironically, Steve, is probably the the part of the paper that is least read. Right? You've got the introduction. You got the methods, you got the discussion and the conclusion. You know, I don't know what the stats are on this. I don't think we have stats, but I dare say most people read the intro, right? Probably skip skip most of the methods and get to the good bits at the end. And I think if you if you're interested in, in research and and you listen to podcasts about research and you know you're interested in in reading a paper. Don't be afraid to read the method section, even if you might not immediately understand it, right? And I think this is a really important um, concept because 
I, I think with social media, you know, being a large part of um, information transfer and the disse dissemination of, of research these days, it's quite easy to just get lost into what get lost in what you see in in social media and you might think that there's no point of reading the whole paper because you're getting most of the details on social media but the way i see it is i see this information landscape that we're creating where a research paper gets published and you know that that's uh, that this this landscape is made up of many peaks and valleys and the research paper is right at the top it's the peak right now that's as accurate as the information can get because it's in its original form now social media digests that information right chews it up spits it out we then have basically a bunch of information fragments just scattered across the landscape right so we're now going from a peak into this valley i call it the valley of information despair because people are reading these bits and pieces right that come from the original source but they lack the detail the nuance the clarity um that is required to truly understand right what the original document is putting forth and i think that is a a, a problem in this day and age and, th and this is why these podcasts are so important because these podcasts come out and they form another peak in the information landscape. But unfortunately, because of the delay between the podcast release, right, and the initial release of a paper or an article, whatever it might be, a lot of people are stuck in that valley of information despair. And the problem, Steve, is that it's quite hard from there to climb back up to a peak, right? To climb back up to the peak, you got to read the paper, right? You you have to listen to a two hour podcast. Um, good thing is podcasts are becoming you know, readily available and, and people are willing to, to listen to them, but it takes time and effort. And a lot of people yeah. get trapped in that valley of information despair and you know the content that they see on social media seem it seemingly represents the original document but in fact like i said before it may lack some of the nuance the detail and the and in discussion of the uncertainties that are actually embedded in the data right the uncertainties that are baked in that that data set that we we haven't addressed yet and this goes for many topics in exercise and nutrition science and even even beyond that so you know what i'm trying to say here is that if you do get your information from social media you have to be um somewhat uh you have to consider that it may not map on to the original document that was actually put forth because of the way social media basically chews it up and and spits it out so hopefully that makes sense and uh you know what i'm saying here is you've got to do some some research on your own uh, you have to be willing to listen to podcasts um, read papers read the methods uh, and i think this is why we have to put trust in science communicators um that you know do play a role like if you're interested yeah. in research and you want to know more about it put your trust in science communicators who are involved 
in research and who are trying their best to not only put out a a a, a good you know piece of work, but then also um, contribute to podcast discussions like this, which only you know are really invaluable um, in in the information landscape. I think that was really well said. And this information valley of despair, <laughs> I mean, it's horrific, yeah. but it's so true because it's also the type of information, like the the social media posts that do well are the clickbaity ones, the ones that jump to conclusions, the one that just like gives you the TDLR and you don't actually need to go away and read it and understand it or anything. And then, like yeah. you said, someone's read that, it's confirmed maybe a bias or it's changed their mind and then they're kind of done. Or as I've definitely learned with my time of like reading science and talking to people, that yep. there is never a jump to conclusion, uh, especially if your thoughts were over here and suddenly people are saying, no, they should be all the way over here. Mm -hmm. And this was really well considered before. Like you're not suddenly like jumping into this different ship. So uh, I think that's very well said. And I, I really thank to be able, I'm thankful to be able to talk to people like yourself, Martin, and thankful for someone like yourself who is so willing to take the time and effort to not only do this research, but then mm -hmm. put in the time and effort to really explain to the audience why like some things are like the way you've done it and uh, the way you want to go in future. And then also how to hopefully use this as an individual to help your own training and kind of uh, with your clients training or what have you. So yeah, very well explained. And thank you so much for taking the time. I think people are going to really enjoy this and enjoy this paper. Uh, I'm interested to see, uh, other people's takes on it and how that if it goes into the valley of despair but hopefully you avoid it <laughs> <laughs> well i will try and avoid it um i will post the 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 post that i'm planning on um posting on instagram will be posted a little closer to the release date of this podcast and the that that is the exact thought process that i'm implementing here is i'm going to try and make the post and hopefully have a long form discussion released in the days after to avoid that delay between peak to peak right now you know we can't always do that um, because these podcast discussions take time to set up and get edited and whatnot but i'm going to try my best to keep people as well informed as possible because at the end at the end of the day steve there's no social media post that i could make that could do this discussion justice and that could do my work any justice. So that could do the meta aggression and the meta analyses any justice, right? That that can't take place on social media. So I think when when you're looking at updating your coaching or your training philosophy, you need to be careful where you're downloading your information from. So you want to be open to to making an update to your coaching philosophy, no doubt about that. So you don't want to be the person who's always clicking, you know, not now when the update message pops up on your laptop, you're always clicking not now, not now. You want to be willing to click on update, but you want to be in control of how fast you're downloading the information and you need to be smart about where you're downloading that information from, right? Personally, I don't really download information from social media that I intend to influence my coaching philosophy right i might, might see bits and pieces here and there and if i'm interested in something i might click remind me later right and i'll do some further reading i'll wait for a podcast discussion to come out because i want to hear someone's complete position on a on a topic i want to hear a long-form discussion or i want to read a paper or read a book um before i make an update 
to my coaching philosophy, right? I'm thinking about how my philosophy is going to stand its ground over the next five to 10 years, not just the next few months, right? I want to have an anti-fragile philosophy that, you know, gets good results, right? But I don't want to deviate abruptly from that philosophy just because this new study has been released and it shows these specific findings and, you know, we're going to now take these findings at face value. That's not the approach I want to have when it comes to updating my philosophy. And I'd suggest people take a similar kind of approach mentally when they're thinking about whether or not they should change things in their own training um, or their their coaching philosophy with their clients if, if they're a coach. Like I said, you have to be open to updating or else you will be left behind. But if you update too soon, right? You update overnight just because a new study has come out, right? It might work in the short term. That update might work in the short term, but it could be faulty and it might corrupt the rest of your coaching philosophy. So you need to download information slowly over time and you need to be smart about where you're downloading that information from to make the update. That analogy, I don't know if you've used it before, but it's so perfect. Uh, I know how clunky and slow my computer gets when I haven't given it an update. So uh, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's so, so true. And I, I absolutely agree. I think it's unfortunate in some ways where like science has now become like a marketing tool and people like are posting out like studies and like their interpretations of it maybe too soon in some instances. And they're trying to say that they like have the secret or whatever and i can mm -hmm. imagine coaches and i've definitely been there where i feel like oh, i'm getting left behind i've got to update whatever i'm doing here and it's like well yeah. if you already have a, a well thought out kind of system like you said don't kind of get scared because one new studies come out just kind of digest yeah. it read it take your time before and then it can mold what you're mm -hmm. already doing because like you said you don't want to be that person just never updating because then that's just dogma that's yeah. not going to be it's going to be slow and not uh, efficient and productive <laughs> Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, I think yeah, providing your philosophy is is getting you progress or getting your clients progress, you need to be able to trust in it. And you, you need to be able to diagnose whether it's actually, what you're doing is actually having an effect. If you change things overnight, right, it's going to be much harder to diagnose whether the changes you're making um, the reason that, well, well, you don't know if, if if you make too many changes overnight because of a study, right? How can you diagnose which change is actually leading to the effect you're going to see in the coming months, right? So I think diagnostics are an important part of the coaching process and they it takes time to diagnose whether what you're doing is working. So you have to trust in it. If it's working, you've got to trust in it. You have to download information slowly to make tweaks here and there. And Steve, the, the the reality is that you could always potentially be making better progress, right? But but you just don't know that. Like maybe maybe all you need to do is add a couple extra sets to your quads, right? And maybe that's what you're missing out on. Maybe it's two extra sets that's going to give you you know a significant amount of growth. But you don't you don't know that. The best you can do is try to move closer in that direction over time by applying new knowledge, testing things out, etc. Um and I think, you know, from my observations, and I work with a lot of coaches, you know, we've got cert three and four students at JPS, we've got mentorship students, I've got students that I mentor, we've got coaches at JPS, 
right? I, I observe a lot of coaches and the most proficient and the most successful on the gym floor are the ones that don't deviate abruptly from their coaching philosophy, right? They, they hold their ground. They ask me about research findings here and there, but they're not really looking to make these, these massive changes. They just want to stay in the loop and they know what they're doing is working. They've got a good system that's working well, that's based in, in what we currently know, based in their experiences, based in what they're seeing in their clients. And, you know, I know so many coaches who are doing such a great job with their clients, influencing people on the gym floor, changing people's lives. And, you know, they're the ones who aren't caught up in the social media, um, uh, you know, news flashes that we see um, pretty much on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, hopefully people can take something away from that. For sure. Martin, thank you so much for your time. Again, this has been a great chat. It's a, it's a fantastically run study. I'm very excited to, again, see people's responses to it. And uh, yeah, uh, hopefully people will listen to this and take the appropriate action moving forward. If people want to keep up to date with yourself, uh, with they want to see this post, uh, where should they head? Yeah, so you can catch me on Instagram, uh, mrfitness with a double underscore. You'll see that post. Um by the time this podcast is out, it'll be there. Uh, you can also follow uh, the JPS education pages. Uh, we play, I play a large role in uh, the education services that JPS provides. And I'm always after feedback, uh, feedback on pretty much anything, whether it's science communication, whether it's the study design itself. So if you have ever have any questions, feel free to reach out. Um, let me know what you think and I take all of that feedback into account. Thank you so much, Martin, and we'll catch you guys next time. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.